Section 29 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1, by Thomas Stevens. 13. Part 2. Bay Bazaar, Angora, and Eastward. Descending into the Angora Plain, I enjoy the luxury of a continuous coast for nearly a mile, over a road that is simply perfect for the occasion, after which comes the less desirable performance of ploughing through a stretch of loose sand and gravel. While engaged in this latter occupation, I overtake a Zaptia, also en route to Angora, who is letting his horse crawl leisurely along while he concentrates his energies upon a watermelon, evidently the spoils of a recent visitation to a melon garden somewhere not far off. He hands me a portion of the booty, and then requests me to bin, and keeps on requesting me to bin at regular three-minute intervals for the next half hour. At the end of that time, the loose gravel terminates, and I find myself on a level and reasonably smooth dirt road, making a shorter cut across the plain to Angora than the Chemin de Fer. The Zaptia is, of course, delighted at seeing me thus mount, and, not doubting but that I will appreciate his company, gives me to understand that he will ride alongside to Angora. For nearly two miles, that sanguine but unsuspecting minion of the Turkish government spurs his noble steed alongside the bicycle in spite of my determined pedaling to shake him off. But the road improves. Faster spins the whirling wheels. The Zaptia begins to lag behind a little, though still spurring his panting horse into keeping reasonably close behind. A bend now occurs in the road, and an intervening knoll hides us from each other. I put on more steam, and at the same time the Zaptia evidently gives it up and relapses into his normal crawling pace, for when three miles or thereabout are covered, I look back and perceive him leisurely heaving in sight from behind the knoll. Partway across the plain I arrive at a fountain and make a short halt, for the day is unpleasantly warm, and the dirt road is covered with dust. The government Postaya Araba is also halting here to rest and refresh the horses. I have not failed to notice the proneness of Asiatics to base their conclusions entirely on a person's apparel and general outward appearance, for the seeming incongruity of my Ingilis helmet and the Circassian moccasins has puzzled them not a little on more than one occasion and now one wiseacre among this party at the roadside fountain stubbornly asserts that i cannot possibly be an englishman because of my wearing a moustache without side whiskers a feature that seems to have impressed upon his enlightened mind the unalterable conviction that i am an austrian why an austrian any more than a frenchman or an inhabitant of the moon i wonder and wondering wonder in vain 5 p.m., August 16, 1885, finds me seated on a rude stone slab, one of those ancient tombstones whose serried ranks constitute the suburban scenery of Angora, ruefully disburdening my nether garments of mud and water, the results of a slight miscalculation of my abilities at leaping irrigating ditches with a bicycle for a vaulting pole. 
While engaged in this absorbing occupation, several inquisitives mysteriously collect from somewhere, as they invariably do whenever I happen to halt for a minute, and following the instructions of the Ayash letter, I inquired the way to the Inglison Adam, Englishman's man. They pilot me through a number of narrow, ill-paved streets leading up the sloping hill which Angora occupies a situation that gives the supposed ancient capital of Galicia a striking appearance from a distance, and into the premises of an Armenian whom I find able to make himself intelligible in English, if allowed several minutes undisturbed possession of his own faculties of recollection between each word. The gentleman is slow, but not quite sure. From him I learn that Mr. Binns and family reside during the summer months at a vineyard five miles out, and that Mr. Binns will not be in town before tomorrow morning. Also that you are welcome to the humble hospitality of our poor family. This latter way of expressing it is a revelation to me, and the leaden-heeled and labored utterance, together with the general bearing of my volunteer host, is not less striking, if meekness, lowliness, and humbleness, permeating a person's every look, word, and action, constitute worthiness, then is our Armenian friend beyond a doubt the worthiest of men. Laboring under the impression that he is Mr. Binns, English and Adam, I have no hesitation about accepting his proffered hospitality for the night, and, storing the bicycle away, I proceed to make myself quite at home, in that easy manner peculiar to one accustomed to constant change. Later in the evening, imagine my astonishment at learning that I have thus nonchalantly quartered myself, so to speak, not on Mr. Bin's man, but on an Armenian pastor who has acquired his slight acquaintance with my own language from being connected with the American mission, having headquarters at Kazaria. All the evening long, noisy crowds have been besieging the pastorate, worrying the poor man nearly out of his senses on my account and what makes matters more annoying and lamentable i learn afterward that his wife has departed this life but a short time ago and the bereaved pastor is still bowed down with sorrow at the affliction i feel like kicking myself unceremoniously out of his house following the asiatic custom of welcoming a stranger and influenced we may reasonably suppose as much by their eagerness to satisfy their consuming curiosity as anything else the people come flocking in swarms to the pastorate again next morning filling the house and grounds to overflowing and endeavoring to find out all about me and my unheard-of mode of traveling by questioning the poor pastor nearly to distraction that excellent man's thoughts seem to run entirely on missionaries and mission enterprises so much so in fact that several negative assertions from me fail to entirely disabuse his mind of an idea that i am in some way connected with the work of spreading the gospel in asia minor and coming into the room where i am engaged in the interesting occupation of returning the salams and inquisitive gaze of fifty ceremonious visitors in slow measured words he asks have you any words for these people as if quite expecting to see me rise up and solemnly call upon the assembled mussulmans greeks and armenians to forsake the religion of the false prophet in the one case and mend the error of their ways in the other 
I know well enough what they all want, though, and dismiss them in a highly satisfactory manner by promising them that they shall all have an opportunity of seeing the bicycle ridden before I leave Angora. About ten o'clock Mr. Binns arrives, and is highly amused at the ludicrous mistake that brought me to the Armenian pastors instead of to his man with whom he had left instructions concerning me, should I arrive after his departure in the evening for the vineyard. In return, he has an amusing story to tell of the people waylaying him on his way to his office, telling him that an Englishman had arrived with a wonderful araba, which he had immediately locked up in a dark room, and would allow nobody to look at it, and begging him to ask me if they might come and see it. We spend the remainder of the forenoon looking over the town and the bazaar, Mr. Binns kindly announcing himself as at my service for the day, and seemingly bent on pointing out everything of interest. One of the most curious sights, and one that is peculiar to Angora, owing to its situation on a hill where little or no water is obtainable, is the bewildering swarms of Sukhathers, water donkeys, engaged in the transportation of that important necessary up into the city from a stream that flows near the base of the hill. These unhappy animals do nothing from one end of their working lives to the other, but toil, with almost machine-like regularity and uneventfulness, up the crooked, stony streets with a dozen large earthenware jars of water, and down again with the empty jars. The donkey is sandwiched between two long wooden troughs suspended to a rude pack-saddle, and each trough accommodates six jars, each holding about two gallons of water. One can readily imagine the swarms of these novel and primitive conveyances required to supply a population of 35,000 people. Upon inquiring what they do in case of a fire, I learn that they don't even think of fighting the devouring element with its natural enemy, but, collecting on the adjoining roofs, they smother the flames by pelting the burning building with the soft, crumbly bricks of which Angora is chiefly built. A house on fire, with a swarm of half-naked natives on the neighboring housetops, bombarding the leaping flames with bricks, would certainly be an interesting sight. Other pity exciting scenes besides the patient little water-carrying donkeys are not likely to be wanting on the streets of an Asiatic city. One case I notice merits particular mention. A youth, with both arms amputated at the shoulder, having not so much as the stump of an arm, is riding a donkey and persuading the unwilling animal along quite briskly, with a stick. All Christendom could never guess how a person thus afflicted could possibly wield a stick so as to make an impression upon a donkey. But this ingenious person holds it quite handily between his chin and right shoulder, and from constant practice has acquired the ability to visit his long-eared steed with quite vigorous thwacks. Near noon, we repair to the government house to pay a visit to Sira Pasha, the valet or governor of the Vilayet, who, having heard of my arrival, has expressed a wish to have us call on him. We happen to arrive while he is busily engaged with an important legal decision, but upon our being announced he begs us to wait a few minutes, promising to hurry through with the business. We are then requested to enter an adjoining apartment, where we find the mayor, the cadi, the secretary of state, the chief of the Angora Zaptias, and several other functionaries, signing documents, affixing seals, and otherwise variously occupied. 
at our entrance, documents, pens, seals, and everything are relegated to temporary oblivion. Coffee and cigarettes are produced, and the journey Dunyanin Athrafana around the world I am making with the wonderful Araba becomes the all-absorbing subject. These wise men of state entertain queer, Asiatic notions concerning the probable object of my journey. They cannot bring themselves to believe it possible that I am performing so great a journey merely as the outing correspondent. They think it more probable, they say, that my real incentive is to spite an enemy, that, having quarreled with another wheelman about our comparative skill as riders, I am wheeling entirely around the globe in order to prove my superiority, and, at the same time, leave no opportunity for my hated rival to perform a greater feat. Asiatic reasoning, sure enough. Reasoning thus, and commenting in this wise among themselves, their curiosity becomes worked up to the highest possible pitch, and they commence plying Mr. Binns with questions concerning the mechanism and general appearance of the bicycle. To facilitate Mr. Binns in his task of elucidation, I produced from my inner coat pocket a set of the earlier sketches illustrating the tour across America and for the next few minutes the set of sketches are of more importance than all the state documents in the room. Curiously enough, the sketch entitled A Fair Young Mormon attracts more attention than any of the others. The mayor is Suleiman Effendi, the same gentleman mentioned at some length by Colonel Burnaby in his On Horseback Through Asia Minor, and one of his first questions is whether I am acquainted with my friend Burnaby, whose tragic death in the Sudan will never cease to make me feel unhappy. Suleiman Effendi appears to be remarkably intelligent, compared with many Asiatics, and, moreover, of quite a practical turn of mind. He inquires what I should do in case of a serious breakdown somewhere in the far interior, and his curiosity to see the bicycle is not a little increased by hearing that, Notwithstanding the extreme airiness of my strange vehicle, I have had no serious mishap on the whole journey across two continents. Alluding to the bicycle as the latest product of that western ingenuity that appears so marvelous to the Asiatic mind, he then remarks, with some animation, The next thing we shall see will be Englishmen crossing over to India in balloons and dropping down at Angora for refreshments. A uniformed servant now announces that the valet is at liberty and waiting to receive us in private audience. Following the attendant into another room, we find Sirah Pasha seated on a richly cushioned divan, and upon our entrance he rises smilingly to receive us, shaking us both cordially by the hand. As the distinguished visitor of the occasion, I am appointed to the place of honor next to the governor, while Mr. Binns, with whom, of course, as a resident of Angora, His Excellency is already quite well acquainted, graciously fills the office of interpreter and enlightener of the valley's understanding concerning bicycles in general, and my own wheel and wheel journey in particular. Sirah Pasha is a full-faced man of medium height, black-eyed, black-haired, and, like nearly all Turkish pashas, is rather inclined to corpulency. Like many prominent Turkish officials, he has discarded the Turkish costume, retaining only the national fez, a headdress which, by the by, is without one single merit to recommend it save its picturesqueness. In sunny weather it affords no protection to the eyes, 
and in rainy weather its contour conducts the water in a trickling stream down one's spinal column. It is too thin to protect the scalp from the fierce sun rays, and too close-fitting and close in texture to afford any ventilation. Yet, with all this formidable array of disadvantages, it is universally worn. I have learned during the morning that I have to thank Sarah Pasha's energetic administration for the artificial highway from Keshtobek, and that he has constructed in the Vilayet no less than 250 miles of this highway, broad and reasonably well made, and actually macadamized in localities where the necessary material is to be obtained. The amount of work done in constructing this road through so mountainous a country is, as before mentioned, plainly out of all proportion to the wealth and population of a second-grade vilayet like Angora, and its accomplishment has been possible only by the employment of forced labor. Every man in the whole vilayet is ordered out to work at the road-making a certain number of days every year or provide a substitute. Thus, during the present summer, there have been as many as 20,000 men, besides donkeys, working on the roads at one time. Unaccustomed to public improvements of this nature, and, no doubt, failing to see their advantages in a country practically without vehicles, the people have sometimes ventured to grumble at the rather arbitrary proceeding of making them work for nothing, and board themselves and it has been found expedient to make them believe that they were doing the preliminary grading for a railway that was shortly coming to make them all prosperous and happy. Beyond being credulous enough to swallow the latter part of the bait, few of them have the least idea of what sort of a looking thing a railroad would be. When the valley hears that the people all along the road have been telling me it was a chemin d'affaire, he fairly shakes in his boots with laughter. Of course, I point out that no one can possibly appreciate the road improvements any more than a wheelman, and explain the great difference I have found between the mule paths of Kojali and the broad highways he has made through Angora, and I promise him the universal good opinion of the whole world of cyclers. In reply, His Excellency hopes this favorable opinion will not be jeopardized by the journey to Yozgat but expresses the fear that I shall find heavier wheeling in that direction, as the road is newly made, and there has been no vehicular traffic to pack it down. The governor invites me to remain over until Thursday, and witness the ceremony of laying the cornerstone of a new school, of the founding of which he has good reason to feel proud, and which ought to secure him the esteem of right-thinking people everywhere. He has determined it to be a common school in which no question of Mohammedan, Jew, or Christian will be allowed to enter, but where the young ideas of Turkish, Christian, and Jewish youths shall be taught to shoot peacefully and harmoniously together. Begging to be excused from this, he then invites me to take dinner with him tomorrow evening. By this I also decline, excusing myself for having determined to remain over no longer than a day on account of the approaching rainy season and my anxiety to reach Tehran before it sets in. Yet a third time the Pasha rallies to the charge, as though determined not to let me off without honoring me in some way, and this time he offers to furnish me a Zaptia escort, but I tell him of the Zaptia's inability to keep up yesterday, at which he is immensely amused. 
His Excellency then promises to be present at the starting point tomorrow morning, asking me to name the time and place, after which we finish the cigarettes and coffee and take our leave. We next take a survey of the Mohair Caravansary, where buyers and sellers and exporters congregate to transact business, and I watch with some interest the corps of half-naked sorters seated before large heaps of mohair, assorting it into the several classes ready for exportation. Here Mr. Bin's office is situated, and we are waited upon by several of his business acquaintances, among them a member of the celebrated, celebrated in Asia Minor, Tiftik Geoglu family whose ancestors have been prominently engaged in the mohair business for so long that their very name is significatory of their profession. Tiftikji Oglu, literally mohair dealer's son. The smiths, bakers, and hunters of Occidental society are not a whit more significative than are many prominent names of the Orient. Prominent among the Angorians is a certain Mr. Altentopoglu, the literal interpretation of which is son of the golden ball, and the origin of whose family name Eastern tradition has surrounded by the following little interesting anecdote. Ages ago, it pleased one of the sultans to issue a proclamation throughout the empire, promising to present a golden ball to whichever among all his subjects should prove himself the biggest liar, giving it to be understood beforehand that no merely improbable story would stand the ghost of a chance of winning, since he himself was to be the judge, and nothing short of a story that was simply impossible would secure the prize. The proclamation naturally made quite a stir among the great prevaricators of the realm, and hundreds of stories came pouring in from competitors everywhere, some even surreptitiously borrowing whoppers from the Persians who are well known as the greatest economizers of the truth in all Asia. But they were one and all adjusted by the astute monarch, who was himself a most experienced prevaricator, probably the noblest Roman of them all, as containing incidents that might under extraordinary circumstances have been true. The coveted golden ball still remained unawarded, when one day there appeared before the gate of the Sultan's palace, requesting an audience, an old man with travel-worn appearance, as though from a long pilgrimage, and bearing on his stooping shoulders an immense earthenware jar. The sultan received the aged pilgrim kindly, and asked him what he could do for him. "'O oh, sultan, may you live forever!' exclaimed the old man. "'For your imperial highness is loved and celebrated throughout all the empire for your many virtues, but most of all for your well-known love of justice.' "'Inshallah!' replied the monarch reverently. May it please your imperial majesty, continued the old man, calling the monarch's attention to the jar. Your highness's most excellent father, may his bones rest in peace, borrowed from my father this jar full of gold coins, the conditions being that your majesty was to pay the same amount back to me. Absurd! Impossible! exclaimed the astonished sultan, eyeing the huge vessel in question. If the story be true, gravely continued the pilgrim, pay your father's debt. If it is, as you say, impossible, I have fairly won the golden ball. And the sultan immediately awarded him the prize. In the cool of the evening, we ride out on horseback through vineyards and yellow berry gardens to Mr. Bin's country residence, 
a place that formerly belonged to an old pasha, a veritable bluebeard, who built the house and placed the window of his harem, even closely latticed, as they always are, in a position that would not command so much as a glimpse of passers-by on the road hundreds of yards away. He planted trees and gardens, and erected marble fountains at great cost, surrounding the whole with a wall, and purchasing three beautiful young wives, the old Turk fondly fancied he had created for himself an earthly paradise. But as love laughs at locksmiths, so did these three frisky damia laugh at latticed windows, and lay their heads together against being prevented from watching passers-by through the windows of the harem. With nothing else to do, they would scheme and plot all day long against their misguided husband's tranquillity and peace of mind. One day, while sunning himself in the garden, he discovered that they had managed to detach a section of the lattice-work from a window, and were in the habit of sticking out their heads. Awful discovery! Flying into a righteous rage at this act of flagrant disobedience, he seized a thick stick and sought their apartments only to find the lattice-work skillfully replaced, and to be confronted with a general denial of what he had witnessed with his own eyes. This did not prevent them from all three getting a severe chastisement, but as time wore on he found the life these three caged-up young women managed to lead him anything but the earthly paradise he thought he was creating, and, financial troubles overtaking him at the same time, the old fellow fairly died of a broken heart in less than twelve months after he had so hopefully installed himself in his self-created heaven. There is a moral in the story somewhere, I think, for anybody caring to analyze it. Mr. Binns says the old Mussulman was also an inveterate hater of unbelievers, and that the old fellow's bones would fairly rattle in his coffin were he conscious that a family of Christians are now actually occupying the house he built with such careful regard for the Mussulman's ideas of a material heaven, with trees and fountains and black-eyed houris. End of section 29 Recording by William Tomko